Hello everyone, my name is Cliff Duvinois, and after 20 years I returned to my native Michigan and in my quest to reconnect with our great state, I want to talk to the leaders that are behind Michigan's top destinations. I'm going to learn more about them and the great experiences they and their team provide all of us Michiganders, and perhaps I'll learn a few things along the way. Welcome to the Call of Leadership Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I'm your host Cliff Duvinois, and today we have the owner of Team Evergreen Kennel, Michigan's very own dog sledding company. This is going to be Lisa Dietzen. Lisa, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up? I grew up in Wisconsin in the Fox Valley near Appleton. It's a little town called Kakana. And if you're not familiar with that, it's about a half hour south of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I lived there pretty much my whole life until going up to Northern Michigan University in Marquette, Michigan in the in the Upper Peninsula. And I lived there for about 10 years before we moved down here to Wallace, which is just south of Escanaba. And we've actually been doing rides with Treetops Resort in Gaylord for the last six years now, which has been pretty amazing. We have a lot of people come and visit us there and get dog sled rides and it's just a pretty awesome experience for people who think that they have to go all the way to Alaska or Canada to enjoy dog sledding but we're kind of right here in your in your local area. So that's actually one of the reasons why I reached out to you because I am one of those people who thought I would have to go to Alaska to experience dog sledding. So I'm, I'm very happy to to have found you on Facebook and to have you on the podcast today. Just, to, I want to take a quick step back here. What made you decide to go to Northern Michigan University? I have always liked the cold and snow. And so what better place to go than somewhere that's right on Lady Lake Superior because she gives you all the good stuff up there with the snow and the cold weather. <laughs> and uh, back when I was in, I think seventh grade my dad and I took a trip up there to go skiing we used to do a lot of downhill skiing before I hurt my knee and then it kind of was a bummer but when we went up there I kind of just fell in love with the area and the the scenery and being in nature that's always been something I've loved and then the bonus was that the UP 200 sled dog race takes place in Marquette Michigan and so that was a huge highlight for me because I've always wanted to do dog sledding and get into dog sledding, just never had the opportunity. And so being presented with that sort of culture was right up my alley. And what is it about dog sledding to that attracted you to it? Well, when I was in kindergarten, so I was probably five or six years old, we actually learned about parts of the Iditarod in our library curriculum so when i was in kindergarten we learned about the story of balto that was kind of the introduction to the iditarod for us at school and my librarian read that story to us and i kind of just was like yep that's me dogs winter i've always been an animal lover and I guess I raised my hand and said, I'm going to do the Iditarod someday. And she says, okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> because you're five or six years old. People talk all the time. Do you actually really do it? Who knows, right? Well, 
when I did actually start getting into it, I actually messaged her and said, hey, guess what? Guess what I'm doing? And while she was super excited, the first thing she pretty much said is, oh, I bet your mom hates me right now. (laughs) (laughs) My mom is not a cold weather fan. She does not like the, the cold. So she always wonders why I couldn't have picked like beach volleyball in Florida or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think for most people, Florida is like the second home, you know, for people in Michigan. So, you know, there it is. But yeah, I, I think as a as a kid, it's it's great to have these dreams. I know when I was a kid, people asked me what I wanted to do, and I said I wanted to be an astronaut to go in outer space. And mm-hmm. you know, when I realized I wasn't going to qualify for any kind of an astronaut program at all, I kind of gave up on it. But these days, uh, seems like everybody and their brother is selling tickets to get into space. So right. that hasn't yeah. yeah that hasn't died yet. So you know, uh, always encourage people to chase their dreams. So I got to ask the question. For, well, actually, let's take a step back. For, for those people that don't know, what is the Iditarod? The Iditarod is a roughly 1,000-mile race that goes from Anchorage, Alaska, all the way up to Nome. It follows the historical route of the Serum Run that was run back when the city of Nome was suffering from diphtheria. I want to say it was in this that in the 70s don't quote me on the date i'm not very good at dates but okay it was a long time ago okay <laughs> and the children uh of Noam came down with diphtheria which is a pretty uh deadly disease and so they had a, a relay race to get this medicine because the nearest uh hospital that had it was in anchorage so the train could only get it so far, and then dog sled relay took over and got the serum to Nome to help save the children. So the Iditarod was kind of invented to commemorate the historic run of the dogs through the serum, with the serum, to save these children. So it follows pretty closely to the same route. Obviously, there are some changes, but it's basically to uh, it's basically to, I don't know what the right word is. Um, commemorate honor. Yes. Honor. Yeah. It's basically a way to honor the dogs and the trip that they made and to kind of see what they went through and to think back then things were not as good as they are these days and the care and whatever for the dogs so it's just kind of one of those historic type things to try and keep the tradition and history of dog sledding alive. Because now that there's snow machines, a lot of the people in Alaska don't necessarily need sled dog teams because they have snow machines and other ways to get around. Where back then, really the only way to get around in those uh, rural areas was dog sled. Right. So the race is trying to help keep the history of dog sledding alive within the state of Alaska. Sure. I can, yeah, I can imagine probably a lot of people, it's cheaper for them to, you know, go out and buy a tank of gas for their snow machine than it is to constantly have a supply of food on hand for your dogs and, you know, having to worry about their health and, and well-being. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you think about the yearly care that a dog team requires, it's definitely easier to just put a snow machine away in the winter and take it out again next winter. <laughs> yes, exactly. So now I got to ask the question, have you fulfilled your childhood dream and actually ran in the Iditarod? We have not run in the Iditarod yet. 
Yeah. But this last winter, 2000 and what year is it now? 2021. So this last year, January 2020, we did finally finish our qualifying races to run in the Iditarod. We are now qualified to go up to the race in Alaska. And everyone keeps asking when we're going. And that's a really hard question to answer because it's not about just qualifying and saying, tomorrow I'm going to the Iditarod. It takes a lot of resources to get there and a lot of planning and logistics. And just that season running the Iditarod will cost roughly $40,000. Whoa. So, yeah, it's not one of those things where you can just pack up and head to Alaska the next day. It takes a lot of resources and work. And we kind of, we as an I and my handling crew and looking at our dogs, my dogs, we kind of just decided that we're going to kind of take our time going there because you can't practice too much. And when you get out into Alaska, if you have a problem out on the tundra, you're possibly days away from help or a hospital where, you know, if something goes wrong in our races around here, you know, you could be at a hospital in a couple hours. Right. And so you have to really be confident in your winter survival skills, your fire building skills at negative 60 degrees in a snowstorm, making shelters. And not that we don't have those skills. I just feel like we could do better at it. And looking at how we finish some of our qualifiers and compared to some of the other teams, I feel like there's a lot of things that we could improve on. And I would like to try them again and see if we can improve on those things and see if I can kind of build a little bit more confidence in myself. I think my dogs could do it, no problem. It's, it's me. Right. <laughs> I'm the weak link in the whole operation. So. <laughs> <laughs> They're equipped to do this a lot better than than humans are. They've got their double coats and their special metabolism and special things that they have evolved over the years to help them adapt to those types of temperatures where humans, we're not quite as adaptive to that as uh, we like to think that we are. (laughs) Because I can imagine that spending a thousand miles on a dog sled, while everybody might think, you know, you're just sitting back with your you know, your cup of hot chocolate, you know, you're, you're actually being quite uh, active with, you know, managing the team, managing your dogs, making sure your stuff stays uh, on the sled. And, and and I have to, and I'm going to, I'm going to show my TV knowledge here. There was a show that was on TV that was called Survivor Man. Love that show. And in one of those, he actually had a dog sled. And what he was trying to do was to uh, imitate what it would be like if you were on a dog sled in Alaska on the tundra and you fell off your sled because the dogs keep right on going. Yes. And yeah, and they do. They just keep right on going. So he did that. He he mirrored falling off a, you know, a dog sled when you're going along at, you know, whatever speed that was and sure enough, true to form, those dogs just kept on booking. Like they didn't even <laughs> notice that he had fallen off his sled and here he is stuck in the the tundra by himself and now he has to survive for 3 days. And mm-hmm. I was just, I, I was just like blown away because there's, there's a lot more to this than, than meets the eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of upper body work. A lot of people think that we're just standing on the back of the sled, which in a lot of realities, yeah, we are just standing there. But at the same time, we're standing on a two inch rail 
<laughs> so think about standing on a two inch rail for thousand miles and what your feet might feel like after that. And it's a lot of balancing work because a lot of these sleds are not hinged in the fashion that we think of a door, but they do uh, move back and forth to help you steer the sled. And so a lot of times you're standing on the back of the sled and you're constantly balancing because if you lean too far one way, you might tip the sled that way. If you lean too far the other way, you're going to tip it the other way. So it's a lot of balancing and maneuvering. And so you're moving around back there even when you don't really think that you are. And that's another way to kind of keep warm is doing all those movements. But we figure that on a sled, we, on a cold night dog sledding, we're probably burning anywhere between five and 7,000 calories, I would think. And then the dogs themselves during peak training and racing, they're burning anywhere between 10 and 16,000 calories a day. So these are not for the weak-hearted people (laughs) or the weak-hearted dogs. And so there's a lot that goes into it just in figuring out how to get that many calories into you to not deplete your your calorie and energy level too much. So it's a lot of strategy and, and intake for sure. It definitely is. And, you know, when you're out there, especially doing the Iditarod, um, and I'm actually familiar with the Iditarod, not because I ran it, but, but because there was actually a show on TV that actually went through it. I, I watched the entire series uh, mm-hmm. just because, you know, watching all the challenges that these people had to go through. So I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with the Iditarod, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, all the upkeep you got to do. But uh, what I want to do is I want to talk about, you know, keeping it more local because we've talked a lot about Alaska. Let's keep yeah. it a little bit more local. What decided for you anyways... Um, well, I guess let's take a step back. So you've got you've got this interest in getting into dog sledding. How does one start to even get into that in the first place? <laughs> a lot of money, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know that any musher really has. So I started out with a mentor. So when I went up to Northern Michigan University, I started out with somebody else who already had dogs, and I learned from them and that was Snowy Plains Kennel up in Marquette, Michigan. And they kind of took me through the first steps. Uh, They were the first ones who got me on an actual dog team. I had run a couple dogs in front of a sled that I had built, but nothing crazy and just across the dog park a couple of times. But they got me on my very first dog team, real dog team on the sled training, learning how to kind of train some of these dogs. And then when my needs were no longer met by them because I wanted to do more competition and they did more of rides, I moved to a second mentor who basically threw me into the whole world of competitive dog racing. And I learned a lot from him. And I was with him for one season. That was David Gill. And he actually was the original owner of Team Evergreen Kennel. And when he retired from the sport after that first year I was with him, I kind of had fallen in love with all of these dogs and I didn't want to say goodbye. So with a friend, a couple of friends of mine, we all took over the kennel and we bought Team Evergreen Kennel. Wow. And that's wow. kind of how I ended up with Team Evergreen Kennel. And then, and that was in 2012. And then in 2014, I took sole ownership of Team Evergreen Kennel. So it has been my kennel in 
in sole ownership since 2014. So it was really weird from going to no dogs to about 21 dogs in a very short amount of time. It Back then, I looked at things differently than I do now. But at the time, I was looking for dogs that were happy to do their job, were good eaters, and just needed a job. I did a lot of taking in rescues or last chance dogs back when we first started. And now we've kind of evolved into a more, not that we don't take in those dogs still, but we have like a more closed goal as in, okay, we need, we our end goal really is to do the Iditarod. So these are the types of dogs that we need in order to get that goal accomplished. So we're looking for dogs that have good coats because if they don't have a good coat, they're not going to survive out in the cold. I need dogs that are going to eat and they love to eat because if they're not eating those 16,000 calories a day, we're in trouble. <laughs> I want dogs that are high driven and they like doing their job because if they don't like doing their job, then we're not having fun, right? So it's all about keeping the dogs happy and setting them up for success because if they're not having fun, I'm not having fun. And if they're not having fun, we're really not going anywhere because if you if you have a dog, you know that if they don't want to do something, they're not going to do it. So if they aren't having fun, they're not going to do it. I like to tell people you can't push a rope because that's the only thing that's really connecting these dogs to the sled is a rope. And so if they weren't doing it on their own will and their own passion, you wouldn't be going very far. So the dogs have to really enjoy doing their job. And that's kind of what I'm looking for is just a happy go lucky dog that likes doing what they're doing, has some good coat qualities so that they can do well out in the cold and, have good eating skills because they like to eat and the other thing is they have to have good feet because like cars on a tire if you don't have good tires you're not going to get much traction you're not going to go very good and the same with the dogs if their feet are hurting or they don't have very good good feet they're like tires on your car you're not going to go very good and you might have to stop and you might have to drop out so keeping the dog's feet is like tending to your tires making sure that they're they're well taken care of so anything that's going to make the dog a little bit more comfortable is always something that we are looking for in our dogs sure and what gave you the idea to you know open up i I guess for lack of a better term open up your your kennel and start giving dog sled rides what led you to what led you to treetop well, when we lived in Marquette, we did some local rides, but not a whole lot because we are still primarily a racing kennel. But rides can sometimes help offset the costs of this hobby because it's not a cheap hobby by any means. So we estimate that it costs roughly $1,000 a month to maintain our small kennel. We're considered a micro kennel, only having 14 dogs. Some of these tour kennels have 200 or more dogs in them Whoa. so they have a lot of dogs to take care of so the expense goes up exponentially as you add add dogs so we are actually at 14 are considered a very small small kennel and our expenses are still pretty high considering that it's about a thousand dollars a month which when you think about it twelve thousand dollars a year you know like but 
when I really think about it, that's almost half of my income every year. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Just to maintain my kennel. And so there's a lot that we think about and rides is a good way to sometimes offset that cost. And so when we lived up in Marquette, we did some of the local rides. People would come from the university or we'd meet people at work that were interested in rides, but we didn't do a whole lot of touring because we were mostly racing. And then one day, one day, Kevin McKinley down at Treetops Resort contacted us and asked us if we'd be interested in doing rides. And it was never really anything I had considered before until that day. (laughs) And I guess so the opportunity presented it to us and we grabbed it. So it wasn't really us going to Treetops. It was actually Treetops who found us. (laughs) And I'm actually pretty thankful for it because it's been a really great relationship with them and has worked out fantastic and we love doing it and we get to meet a lot of cool people and the dogs enjoy it because they get socialized so I I love sharing the sport with people because as we said earlier people think they need to go to Canada or Alaska and here we are right right in Michigan for people to come and visit us and learn about the dogs and get to pet the dogs and meet the dogs and see that they're not necessarily you know scared or unsocialized like some of the animal rights groups project onto sled dogs at times and they get to learn about the sport and see the dogs enjoy themselves enjoy doing what they're doing and that's what's really cool for me because otherwise sled dog racing isn't really a spectator friendly sport because we're usually just out in the woods and nobody sees us So it really gives people the opportunity to come and have that almost intimate experience with these dogs and learn about them and see them and meet them. And it's awesome when we start getting people multiple times a day because they booked earlier and they came back later in the afternoon because they had so much fun. Or even weekend to weekend and year to year, we have people that come every year and sometimes almost every weekend to get a ride from us because they've enjoyed the experience. And to me, that is super rewarding to know that we're getting it out there and people are learning about these dogs and they're enjoying it and they're having fun and they they like it. And so that I feel is a big important part of being a musher is getting out into your community and teaching the people about the dogs and what it's really about. We're not making these dogs do this. They like to do it on their own. Again, we don't have whips. We don't have reins on them like horses. It's all voice command and willpower. If they didn't want to do it, we wouldn't be going anywhere. So it's really interesting to see people interact with the dogs and the dogs getting the socialization and uh, they just love to be pet and people seeing the different personalities and the dogs. It's it's just great. I know there's a big focus these days on when, uh, you know, businesses are trying to create an experience for people who, you know, come to them and, and visit them. Why don't you share with us or kind of walk us through, you know, when somebody has bought their ticket, you know, what, from that point forward, what is the, you know, what's the experience? What are they looking forward to uh, as far as, as far as being part of team Evergreen Kennel? Well, the first and last ride usually get the, get the most experience because 
they actually get to see the team being hooked up and go out for the first time. And even at the end, they get to see kind of a little bit of a different. But all, all the rides are are fun. They're in 10-minute increments. The trail is a roughly a mile long, which people don't think is very long. The thing is, a lot of people also don't come prepared to sit in the sled for one mile. We do recommend that you still wear some winter gear like boots and snow pants because you do get wet sometimes and you are sitting in the snow and you are out in the cold. And so sometimes we get people who come in their regular street clothes, which still works, but they come back a little colder than they thought they were going to. <laughs> so a lot of times we recommend that you still wear your snow pants and you know some of your winter clothes because you are still in nature, whether we're at a resort or you're out in the woods. This is a full contact sport, we call it. And the dogs are still dogs. And sometimes we take corners sharp and you'll get snow shot up at you. And it's just all part of the experience. It's very smooth. A lot of people wonder if it's going to be bumpy. There are times where it gets a little bumpy, but for the most part, it's actually a very smooth ride. It's like being on a snow roller coaster. So, you know, like some of them are a little rickety and some of them like the new ones are super smooth and you don't even know that you're on a on a machine. And that's kind of how this is. And we even get kids and adults even going down some of these hills with their hands up yelling like they're going down a hill on a roller coaster. And it's just fun to see their enthusiasm because I remember those first times that I was ever on a dog sled and I felt the exact same way. Just that that pure joy of watching these dogs work and enjoy what they're doing. And so the first ride of the day usually gets to see us hook up, which is kind of a fun experience because we do what we call loose hookups. So we actually let the dogs down, we we put their harnesses on and then we let them go and they actually run to the sled to be hooked up. So this is where I'm talking about, this is all free will. They do this on their own. We're not dragging them to the line. They're individually on their own walking to this area to be hooked up. And to me, that's really cool to see because I know then for sure this dog wants to go. And a lot of times they'll even go into the spot where they want to stand on the line. They'll stand there like they're hooked up, even though they're not, because they know that they're going to be doing their job and they love doing this. Nice. So the first couple of team, teams out for the day get to see that. And then just like they're a lot louder usually on the first first run barking because they're just super excited to go. And as they go and the further we go, the more they mellow out. So you don't necessarily see all the barking, but they still do every time we go out, get excited and get lunging and and banging into their harnesses and it's fun. And then the last ride of the day always gets to see that loose, loose drop too, because then we'll just let them go off of the line and they'll run back to the truck and they'll go and wait for us to take them out of their harnesses and put them back up into their little houses and they're ready to go. So that's what I talk about this free will. And that's what I like people to see is we're not dragging them down there. We have a couple dogs that are flight risk. We call them. So we do, (laughs) we do walk them down to the line because otherwise they'd probably be all over the place. But for the, for the most part, that's not that that they're not excited to go. It's just that they're a little overexcited to go. <laughs> <laughs> we had to kind of contain them a little bit. But the ride lasts about five to ten minutes, depending on the trail conditions. And so if the trail is really hard packed, you get a faster ride. And then this last beacon, we were there, and it was kind of 
slushy and packy snow, so the ride lasted, you know, closer to 10 minutes. So it really just kind of depends on the trail conditions that we're dealing with. And that's what we try and tell people is we can't really give you a, a certain time because the first ride of the day is always the fastest. And so like we kind of can base things off of that and the trail conditions, but generally we're lasting between five to 10 minutes to go this one mile. And if you kind of do the calculations on that, that's averaging between like 12 and 13 miles an hour or 10 and 13 miles an hour. So they're, they're kind of booking it along. And then of course, the more weight that you add in the sled, the slower they're going to go to some of these little kids that we get in the sled, the dogs don't even think there's anybody in there, and they just fly, <laughs> which the kids don't, don't complain about at all. That's where we get those roller coaster screams, which is hilarious to me. And just makes me smile to seeing these kids that were the age that I was when I first learned about dog sledding, enjoying this experience and wishing that I had more of those opportunities as a kid myself and so to be able to prevent or to present those opportunities to to children makes me feel great because maybe someday one of them will become a musher too just like me if i can change one child into a musher i will be happy because mushing unfortunately is a dying sport just because of the time and the expense and people have families and it's hard to have dogs and have families and so there isn't really a whole lot of a younger generation coming up behind us and so it's really important for me I think to to get the education out there so people get interested and even if they run it recreationally with a few dogs that's still something and I think that it would be really sad to see the whole sport die as a whole because these dogs just really love doing what they're doing. Certainly and when we were talking before about the weight on the sled uh, mm-hmm. if, a, if a family of four show up at, at your door and say, hey, we want to go for a dog sled ride, how many people can you accommodate in the dog sled? So the weight limit on the sled is 200 pounds, give or take a little bit. I mean, we're not going to be out there with a scale weighing you guys. But the reason we have that weight limit is not necessarily because the dogs can't pull more than that. It's because I have to be able to steer you. And I know this is radio, so you can't see how big I am, but I'm only about 110 pounds on a on a cold, on a good day soaking wet. And so when you start adding 200 pounds into the sled, you're starting to, to max out what I can safely steer in the sled. And I, obviously this comes down to safety. We want everybody to have fun and be safe on their ride. So I need to put that weight limit on there so that I know that I can safely guide you during this ride. And so the weight limit doesn't come necessarily by how much the dogs can pull because the dogs pull a 650 pound APTV during the summer or during the fall. So, I mean, they're pulling a lot of weights. They can do it if we have a bigger team. It's just that I need to be able to steer you. The second thing is you need to be able to fit in the sled. So the sled is only so big, and if you don't fit, you don't fit. And we found 200 pounds to kind of be that for the sled that we have to kind of be the the good number for what we can steer and what we can fit in it. And so that usually amounts to one adult or an adult and a small child or two children is usually what we look at for a sled load. Nice, nice. And Lisa, if somebody's listening to this uh, podcast episode and they want to you know, learn uh, more about you, find your website, follow you online, 
what is the best way for them to connect with you out there? We have a Facebook page, uh, Team Evergreen Kennel. That's where we do most of our updates. So we post a lot of pictures and videos on there. We also have a website, which is www.teamevergreenkennel.com. It doesn't have a ton of information on it because, well, it's a lot of work to keep it updated. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. And so I try and keep it minimal so that I don't have to worry about updating it every couple of months to make sure it's up to date. So it kind of gives you the information you need to get where you need to go. It, It directs you to either our contact through email or phone or our Facebook page. And it also can link you to Treetops Resort which is where we do our rides through. Sometimes we do our rides at our home location, but we don't always have reliable snow here and it would have to be during the week, which isn't always, you know, accommodating to people. So in springtime, we're a little bit more open to people coming here for rides if we still have snow, but our main rides location is at Treetops Resort in Gaylord. And through our website you can also link to them and it'll take you directly to the page where you can book with treetops for a ride it has our dates and times on there and if you call them they will schedule you for one of those time slots like i said they're in 10 minutes so if you have a family of four and you're all going to need a separate slot you'll book four slots so you so say you wanted to start at noon you'd do the the 12 o'clock noon, you do the 12, 10, 12, 20, and 12, 30 slots if you have four people. And like I said, they don't always take 10 minutes. So if you have a family of four, you might get done before then. But then we also then use that time where you can kind of meet the dogs and pet them and schmooze on them and take pictures. So we're not going to just scoot you out when you're time, you know, when you're done. If we have time, you're allowed to sit there and ask questions and all that kind of stuff. And then just going actually to Treetops Resort, their their website, you can get to the dog sledding rides there and book directly through Treetops. Excellent. And for our audience, we will have all those links in the show notes down below. Lisa, it's been fun having you on the podcast today. Thank you. It's been fun talking to you. <laughs> all right. Have a good day. Yes, you too. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements. You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus, you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callleadership.com email, type in your email address, and you're done. Once again, that's callofleadership.com slash email. I'll catch you in the next episode.